electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 130 of the coronavirus crisis. Tonight, the biggest state in the country gets set to reopen and the guidelines the White House doesn't want you to see. We are entering into the next phase. California gets ready to reopen. Plus, let's just say Moderna has it going. New information on the race for a vaccine. And we introduced this product uh, to guarantee the middle seat. One airline set to charge passengers to keep the middle seat open changes course and goes with another controversial plan. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. It is good to have you with us on this Thursday night. Today, stocks rising despite another big jump in unemployment claims. The Dow and S&P 500 up around 1%. NASDAQ was yet again the outperformer, up nearly 1.5%. The index now positive on the year. Amazing. California, this country's biggest economic engine, reopens tomorrow. It all begins with phase one, some retailers and manufacturers going back to work. Not all cities are going along with it, though. San Francisco says they're not quite ready. Bob Kocher is one of the lead doctors on California governor's coronavirus task force. He is a former special assistant to President Obama on the National Economic Council. He's with us now. Dr. Kocher, uh, good to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. How is it going to look tomorrow? It's going to look promising, I think, tomorrow. In California, we've scaled up testing so that people who need a test can get a test. Uh, we've done a good job at flattening our curve and at identifying most new cases. I think we have a good plan to um, do contact tracing and support for those people who are infected. Uh, and I think people will gain confidence that they can begin to reengage in the economy. So anybody who needs a test in the state of California can get a test? Did I hear you correctly? We're working very hard to make sure that that is true. Uh, City of Los Angeles has already done that. We're opening up 86 additional sites to get tests in addition to the 600 that already exist in California. We have good supplies and a large number of tests available. When do you think you can go to the next phase? I think that depends on the data. We've done a nice job in California flattening our curve and having fewer people in the hospital than we expected and fewer deaths. Uh, We need to watch carefully what happens as we change our stay-at-home order to be more permissive. Uh, And if we're fortunate, we'll be able to continue allowing people to do more things. It's going to be left up, though, it sounds like, to to local officials throughout your state. San Francisco tonight saying that they'll wait until May 18th to partly reopen. Exactly. California is a lot of different regions. And most of our cases right now are in Southern California. Uh, San Francisco also has many cases. But there's parts of California where we've seen declines in the number of cases and very few cases at all. And so we will have a plan that's tailored to the different geographies of California. 
Dr. Kocher, we wish you well. Report back uh, on how it all goes. We'll be watching. Thank you. All right. We appreciate your time tonight. I want to welcome in now Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is the former head of the FDA and a CNBC contributor, as you know. Dr. Gottlieb, welcome back to you. How do you think California's reopening is going to go? Do you think the state is ready? Well, look, the state's very diverse. I know Bob Kocher well. He's been working on this from the outset um, and working very well on it with the state. Um, it's a diverse state. So there's a lot of different parts of the state, some that haven't been hard hit, some that have. As Bob mentioned, Southern California is still so showing increases in cases. Los Angeles is still showing some increases in cases. Northern California is actually doing quite well. And San Francisco has been aggressive from the very outset, putting in place a stay-at-home order, the first city to do it on, I think, March 18th, a long time ago now. Um, and parts of the western, the, the eastern part of the state and the western part of the state have different epidemics. And so I think it's, it's appropriate that they would give discretion to local officials, like the federal government's doing um, with the states as well. Yeah, there's still been some frustration, though, in states about a lack of a national testing plan, that it is being left to local jurisdictions, whether it's cities or, or states or those in charge on the ground locally. Well, look, I think where the federal government could be helpful is trying to provide the capacity to the states, trying to help them get access to that testing supply chain, which is really an international supply chain, both the reagents that are used in testing as well as some of the low commodity products like the swabs and the plastic pipettes that are used to run the samples. But ultimately, in terms of standing up testing sites, I think the states have more of a capacity to do that. Um, you know, and more ability to tailor that to local needs. The government can also be helping with resources. The federal government did allocate, Congress did allocate resources to states. I think there probably should be more money put into trying to get testing um, scaled up going into the fall. And there's actually some bills before Congress right now that would do that, that would create more of a national surveillance system. I would expect legislation like that to move with the next stimulus package when one comes through Congress. Let's move to another big story today. That is the White House apparently blocking the CDC from releasing its 17-page step-by-step reopening document. Reports say because they think it's too stringent. You're calling for its release, and you did on Twitter today. You say, quote, a lot of businesses literally can't open without it. CDC must publish its umbrella document. When you hear tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, that it is being blocked by the White House, what is your reaction? Well, you know, the White House statement tonight was that it's too prescriptive, and they sent it back to CDC for revisions. It's not really clear if the revisions are going to be around the, the substance of it and the content or more the tone of the document. But the reality is that in a public health emergency, the CDC becomes the de facto regulator for a lot of businesses. There's literally some businesses that can't reopen without permission from the CDC, but a lot of businesses don't want to reopen without permission from the CDC, especially travel-related things and transportation-related businesses. So it's important that CDC does put out sort of an umbrella document that addresses general guidance to industries. And then they're going to have to put out more specific documents that address specific aspects of certain, um, certain industries like airlines, like restaurants, like hospitality businesses. And so this is something that CDC does. It's sort of the bread and butter of the CDC, especially in the setting of a public health emergency. So it's important that these documents do start to come out. Do you worry, though, that a watered-down, so to speak, document is going to put more people at risk? Well, we'll see what it is. I mean, I, I think it's important that the CDC be able to give clear guidance and, and guidance that's, that's detailed enough that it gives good direction to businesses on how to provide safety. I think the irony here is that if the concern is that this may be too prescriptive for businesses and actually impede flexibility, impede business from going forward, the opposite is true to a large degree, that in the absence of guidance, a lot of business can't go forward. And so I think it's very important that CDC speak and speak in a timely fashion. 
Typically, it would be putting out these kinds of guidance documents in the setting of a public health emergency as we look to try to resolve some of these issues. You comfortable, Dr. Gottlieb, with the way that some states are extending their stay-at-home guidelines? I heard from one very big investor today who wonders locally here in the New Jersey area whether it's too strict for too long and that we should start letting some businesses reopen sooner, thinking that people are going to be smart enough to deal with this in the right way. Restaurants, for example, even opening at 25 percent capacity is better than those staying closed for too long, even over Memorial Day weekend, which for some is a big weekend for business. Yeah, well, look, I've had conversations with the New Jersey governor. I don't want to second guess the decisions of the governors because they understand what the situation is like on the ground. I think that a lot of states are diverse and can give discretion to local officials to make different kinds of decisions like what what, California is doing. But in some respects, New Jersey might have been the hardest hit state. We think of New York as the hardest hit state. and New York City was very hard hit. But as a state, when you look at the data coming out of New Jersey in terms of how hard hit they were, the positivity rate, the number of positive cases they still have as a total of of what's being tested, um, the burdens on their hospitals, New Jersey was extremely hard hit. And in some respects, we could argue was the hardest hit state. So it it doesn't surprise me that coming out of this, they're going to be the most cautious. We know that a number of states, Dr. Gottlieb, are opening, yet they don't meet some of the guidelines that the White House had put out uh, initially. Do you think that in some respects the the White House is is going for a de facto herd immunity here by pushing people to reopen uh, perhaps earlier than they may be ready to do and, and see what happens? Essentially, I've seen some suggestions of that. Yeah, I certainly don't think that. Um, the reality is that we are a long way from herd immunity. Even if we continued at the current rates of infection, which hopefully we won't, hopefully we will see some slowing as we head into July and August. But even if we continued at 30,000 infections a day diagnosed, which is really probably 300,000 infections at least, because we're not diagnosing um, more than probably 10% of the infections. But even if we continued on this trajectory, by September 1st, about 15% of the U.S. population would have been infected with coronavirus, which is far, far short of herd immunity. So um, I highly doubt, I mean, the White House has good models and they know the math better than I do. I highly doubt that in the back of their head, there's any kind of plan to get to a de facto herd immunity by, uh, by reopening. Um, I think what the White House is doing is what they've done from the outset. And, and you can criticize it or you can laud it. But what they've done is give discretion to local officials and governors to really make the decisions about um, what's happening within their states. And so the White House isn't pushing the states, really. Um, they're not impeding the states. They're largely leaving it up to the states. Dr. Gottlieb, I'm going to ask you to stay with us. We'll go to another big story, then come back with you. That is the FDA clearing Moderna's coronavirus vaccine for a phase two study today. CNBC's farmer reporter Meg Terrell with us live yet again. Meg, what can you tell us? Hi, Scott. Well, the timelines that Moderna had laid out were already going to be the fastest vaccine development in history if they were successful. But now they're sped up by a few months. Uh, and they said today that the phase two has gotten the go ahead by the FDA uh, to start. They are also finalizing the protocol for their phase three study, which now they say they expect to begin in early summer. They'd previously said just a couple weeks ago they were expecting that to start in the fall. They say if all goes well, they could be seeking potential regulatory approval and, and potentially receiving that as early as 2021. So what does this phase two study look like? Well, the phase one study initially enrolled just 45 patients and now is adding more. The phase two will enroll up to 600 participants, um, half 
18 to 55 and half over 55. The participants will be followed for 12 months. Uh, now, just to give you uh, some sort of scope of this timeline that they've already uh, been through, this started just in January. Uh, then they began the phase one in the middle of March. Uh, in April, they were awarded that almost half billion dollar uh, government support award from BARDA. Uh, and May 1st, they established that manufacturing collaboration with Lanza to potentially be able to make up to a billion doses per year. Uh, but these timelines that Moderna and others are talking about would shatter historical records. And just to give some uh, scope of this, uh, there was a study published in 2013 that looked at hundreds of vaccines um, between 1998 and 2009. They found on average, it took more than 10 years for these to go from preclinical work, so before human testing, uh, to get on the market. And there was only a 6% probability of success. Now that's a lot lower than we hear about for other areas. Uh, and analysts do point out these are new technologies now, so maybe this isn't uh, the best comparison. And of course, Scott, there's nothing normal about these times, but we would be shattering records here. Everybody's working on it, that's for certain. Meg, thank you. That's Meg Terrell joining us tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, we bring you back in. Your reaction to what we learned today from Moderna, how promising is it? Well, look, it's all good news. Um, Pfizer, which is a company I'm on the board of, announced yesterday that they were going into a phase one, phase two study, a pretty robust study. Uh, Moderna announced today that they're now going into a phase two study, um, which they had previously disclosed in April. They said that they expected to be in a phase two study in the second quarter, so they've been able to stick to that timeline. J&J is moving forward. Merck has a program underway. This is all highly encouraging. I mean, there's a number of companies that really have the capacity to bring this over the finish line and manufacture at scale all pretty far along. And I would say all the companies right now are, you know, largely at equivalent points in terms of where they are in the development process. Uh, by the fall, we should have doses sufficient to, to start large phase three studies, large efficacy studies to further evaluate the safety and effectiveness of these vaccines and potentially use them therapeutically while we continue to study them in a setting of an outbreak. If we were to have one in the city where you can deploy the vaccine into a large study and use it to help ring fence the infection while you continue to study it. Um, but all the companies have said that they should have doses sufficient to do that by the fall. So this is all very promising. Is, it, is there a chance that the virus, Dr. Gottlieb, surprises us and doesn't come back as fierce as some worry in the fall? Sure. I mean, absolutely. I think that that's not the base case. Um, I think it's going to come back in the fall. Uh, other coronaviruses have been seasonal viruses and they don't just go away. Um, there's a good chance that there's a seasonal aspect to this and we do see it dissipate in July and August. And if you remember in 2009 with the swine flu, H1N1, that circulated in epidemic levels all the way into June. And then it sort of just collapsed in July and August, and we had a pretty quiescent um, July and August. And then it came back in, in September and became epidemic again. Um, and so there is a possibility that as we get into the depth of the summer, this does kind of go away. I mean, it certainly stops circulating to the levels it is now. But I think we have to expect that it's going to come back in the fall. Now, by the fall, we should have much better tools, and hopefully we have the capacity to keep up with the infection and control it from becoming certainly epidemic again, but even large outbreaks in American cities. And so... That's what we have to be working towards. But we'll have much better tools going into the fall than we did this go around. I want to continue to talk about some of those tools. Stand by. We'll be back with you in just a moment because the University of California, San Francisco, is now launching a contact tracing training program to help track the spread of the virus. The process could be crucial, as you know, in containing the illness. With us tonight is the principal investigator of that program, Dr. George Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford, I appreciate you being here. Can you give us an idea of how all of this is going to work? Sure. Thanks, Scott. So 
the University of California, San Francisco and the San Francisco Department of Public Health have a long and very cordial and very close relationship. Early on in the uh, in the epidemic, the director of public health asked UCSF if we could possibly help with contact tracing. So we sent over uh, two or three people who basically got us got the lay of the land, put together a curriculum and then trained 40 of our own people from UCSF to start contracting contact tracing the next week. The week after that, we got people from the uh, from who were working for the city and county of San Francisco who had been unable to work um, to add to that group another 60 and then another uh, 40 to 60 the week after that. So currently the workforce is made up by some people from UCSF, a lot of people from the uh, city and county of San Francisco who have been repurposed for this, people from the city attorney's office, the assessors, city librarians, and then some of our medical and nursing students who are getting doing it for credit and some retired clinicians from the uh, uh, from the San Francisco Department of Public Health. How, how difficult? And basically, it's a pro- how, how, I'm sorry. Me, sorry for interrupting you. But how difficult is the process it, itself just to do the contact tracing, to, to get people to be able to find the right people and to get the people they find to be able to give them the truth? Well, it's the it's not without its complications. So that starts with the person who's been reported as having the disease. There has to be an intake interview to understand with whom they've been uh, in close contact over the last five days. Uh, there are uh, we then go and try and contact those people if they've been truly been in close contact to bring them in for testing and then to arrange for isolation or, or, or quarantine, depending on if they're positive or negative and then have the wraparound services so people can remain safely in isolation or quarantine and their families can be taken care of, for instance, in some cases. It's a very big task. How many people do you think you'll ultimately need in what is a very big state? So in, in California, our first, uh, our, the first order is to train 10,000 people uh, for the state, and that's on top of a workforce of a few thousand who are already in these kinds of roles. So uh, it's a it's by the end of the month. So it's a pretty much of a Herculean task, but we're uh, we're up to it. And we have partners at UCLA who are terrific and we're pushing it forward. We will all be rooting for you. That is for certain. Dr. Rutherford, I appreciate your time this evening. Thank you for being with us. Thanks very much, Scott. All right. Let's bring back in Dr. Gottlieb as we finish our conversation. How is this going to go, Dr. Gottlieb? Are we going to be able to pull what is a pull off a Herculean task, as that doctor told us? Well, look, this is exactly what states should be doing, and unfortunately not every state's doing this. I think that the criticism of contact tracing in this context is that there's just going to be so many cases, we're not going to be able to keep up with all of them. And that's true. We're not going to be able to keep up with all of them. But if we can keep up with a percentage of them, you know, even a small percentage, even 15, 20 percent of the cases that we can actually trace and do the contact tracing that the doctor described, or maybe even less than that, that can dramatically reduce the the propensity of this to become epidemic again. So we have to try. We have to try to reduce as much spread as we can. And so this is a very good tool for doing that. And this is something that South Korea did with a lot of success. South Korea never locked down their economy. They never shut down like us, even though they had an expanding epidemic because they were able to keep up with the cases. Heading into the fall with good testing in place, with some therapeutics that potentially will work, if we can couple that with aggressive contact tracing and try to reduce the number of cases that go on to have secondary and tertiary transmission, um, we could potentially keep this from becoming epidemic again heading into the winter. That's you, what we have to try to do. But you just said that what California is doing is not being copied in, in other states. Why is that? 
Why, why are they late to the game? Not right now. I mean, there's states that are investing in this. Massachusetts, I've been working with them. They're making a big investment. Maryland is. New York is. I think that there's some states where there's a lot of political um, controversy around this, where people feel that the idea of the government doing this kind of contact tracing and, and tracking people down and asking them to self-isolate is sort of big government um, and is intrusive. And there's been some pushback. And so this is a political debate that we really need to have in earnest in this country, because I think every state needs to be doing this at some level if we're going to prevent this from becoming epidemic again. Um, we also need to make sure that having being positive for coronavirus isn't punitive. So if you are positive and the government does ask you to self-isolate, people should be given some compensation, perhaps um, be allowed to self-isolate if they want in a hotel rather than at home so they can do it safely away from their family. If they want, they should be given that that option. We need to make sure employers continue to pay people so you don't lose wages because you're agreeing to self-isolate so that you don't infect other people. We need to find ways to make this non-punitive. If it's a punitive process, if being positive suddenly invokes all of these restrictions and you're forcibly quarantined, people aren't going to go out and get tested. So we need to think very carefully about that. I know California is thinking about that, and so are the other states that are doing this. Dr. Gottlieb, as always, we appreciate your time. We'll see you tomorrow night. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Thanks Once a lot. again with us, a CNBC contributor, former head uh, of the FDA. By the way, Dr. Gottlieb will be one of the healthcare leaders at, at our interactive virtual Healthy Returns event. That's on May 12th. We'll also have the CEOs of Moderna, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pfizer, and Regeneron. You can learn more and register at cnbcevents.com slash healthy returns. The CNBC special report is just beginning. We introduced this product to guarantee the middle seat. Outrage over one airline's middle seat policy forces the company into retreat. But now the CEO has more big news that's going to impact passengers. He joins us live next. And how one of the hottest stars in the country is stepping up in a time of crisis. Before the break, images from around the United States on the 130th day of the coronavirus crisis. horizon for financial markets. At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Here are the latest headlines tonight on the virus. The Federal Reserve says consumer borrowing in March fell for the first time since 2011 as credit card use plummeted. The FDA pulls approval for dozens of manufacturers of N95 style masks in China after they failed to meet standards. Disney Springs, which is an outdoor shopping and dining area, will start a phased reopen May 20th. It is Disney's first U.S. property to do so. And President Trump says he will be tested daily after one of his valets tested positive for the coronavirus. 
Well, the all-in challenge has raised more than $33 million so far to feed the hungry. Tonight, pop star DJ Khaled and e-commerce mogul Michael Rubin on how they're stepping up. During the toughest times, you need to step up. You need to put your best foot forward. We have this audacious goal. How do we raise as much money as possible to help feed people that are desperately in need through the All-In Challenge? We can get every athlete, every celebrity, every artist to come together and to donate one incredible item or one incredible experience. And then we auction those items off or raffle those items off at sweepstakes. We could raise a tremendous amount of money. No one could speak better on the All-In Challenge than Cal can, but he's helping run this thing on a day-to-day basis. I thought it was incredible, and I immediately, you know, got into the challenge. I'm letting somebody jet ski with me. I'm going to take him to dinner. Love is the answer for everything. And that's what Michael Rubin's doing is showing love and, and helping the kids. We have to protect our families, mothers and fathers, people that don't have jobs people that need food and it's just going viral with pure love pure energy and it's entertainment and it's inspiring and it's fun i'm doing what god wants me to do is give blessings you know the more blessings you give the more blessings you get back there are some amazing experiences on there for more information you can go to allinchallenge.com well frontier airlines now reversing its decision to charge passengers a fee to sit next to an empty middle seat Phil LeBeau is with us tonight, back with the CEO of that company, Barry Biffle. Good evening, guys. Hey, Scott, good evening. Let's bring in Barry. He joins us from Denver, which is the home city for Frontier Airlines. Barry, when we talked to you, I think it was Monday night, you explained that you were going to have a new uh, program where people could pay $39 to guarantee that the middle seat would be empty, the one that would be next to them, and now you've reversed that plan. What, What was the reason for the change? Well, thanks again for having us on. And uh, I just want to remind you, we talked the other day, but uh, from the beginning, Frontier has been focused on ensuring that our employees and our passengers are safe. And so we started the fogging and disinfecting procedures uh, well over a month ago. Uh, we were one of the first airlines to require all employees to wear to wear face masks. Uh, we we uh, started out about a month ago having the health uh, acknowledgement of our passengers. And now this week, we're, we're instituting uh, facial coverings for all passengers. And tonight, we just announced that we are going to be the first airline to announce that uh, we're going to have temperature checks for, for passengers. But we did want to offer more options, uh, and we offered the more room option. There was some pushback. Uh, customers loved it, by the way, but uh, there was some pushback. So listen, we just rolled back the prices from that. We're still blocking those seats. We'll still honor it for those that sold it. Um, and you can still buy it now, uh, but uh, we reversed back the fee, uh, given there was some some challenges with it. And in sure. fact, we've expanded the number of seats from 18 to 40. So, and we'll and we'll talk about that pushback, Barry, because I know it came from some members on Capitol Hill in Congress who were saying, "Look, you guys are profiting off of fear, so to speak." Um, let's talk about this change when it comes to passengers and the fact that you will now be temperature checking them. In other words, screening their temperatures before they board. How is this system going to work? When does it take effect? And are you worried about any pushback from passengers? So, so look, we are going to implement that. We announced it today. We're implementing it effective June 1st. Uh, we, we, we're very data-driven. Uh, we think it's the right science, and customers are telling us in survey data uh, that's what they want to see. We think the right answer is to do it at the curb or before people enter the airport. And I know the TSA and and the various airport organizations are working on putting together a program, but we felt it was so important. We need to get out there and do this now, and we may change if if and when they put theirs in place. 
but what will happen on June 1st is when you go to board the aircraft, uh, when you walk up to, to give your uh, your phone or your, your boarding pass, uh, we'll be checking your, your temperature with a infrared thermometer like you've seen, I'm sure, in Asia and other places. And so if you pop over 100.4, we're going to pull you to the side. We'll wait 10 minutes. And if you continue to have a fever, um, we're going to see if you can get some uh, care, but you don't need to be on board aircraft at that point. Barry, between the temperature checks and the fact that not only airlines are requiring masks when people are on board, but increasingly all the airports around the country are moving in that direction, are you worried that there's going to be an element of hassle, that people will sit there and say, come on, i got to spend three hours going through the airport, getting on a plane, getting off the plane with a face mask on, worried about my temperature, worried about who else might be sick there. At some point, is the hassle factor here potentially scaring people away from taking a trip? Well, I think after 9-11, I think that was probably one of the best examples in history where we instituted the TSA, lines got formed and so forth. Um, But this is a very fast procedure, um, Phil. Um, This can be done literally in seconds. Uh, You you literally just pull a trigger and it it tests the the temperature. So I think for given the the peace of mind that people have, knowing that they're safe, that everyone else on board, I mean, wouldn't you like to walk in a room and know that everybody else doesn't have a fever. So I think that's what we got to do to keep people safe. Mr. Biffle, it's, it's Scott Wapner. I do appreciate you being back with us. You said a, a few moments ago when Phil was asking you about the rollback of making the folks pay for an empty middle seat, you said, quote, customers love that. I'm trying to figure out which customers would love having to pay more for, for, for their safety. I mean, that was the criticism that you were putting a price on people's health. And I'm wondering whether tonight you regret that decision from the start. Well, look, we, we listen to customers, and, and what they wanted is a guarantee of that. And a lot of airlines are saying they're making best efforts and, and so forth, and we wanted to be able to offer a guarantee. And there's weight and balance considerations and all kinds of things. Um, but I think what's most important, Scott, is there's a lot of confusion about Frontier. Um, our average fare is literally $50 over the last year. Compared to $200 with many of the big carriers, um, our seat assignment fees are very, very inexpensive. Our total price would still be under $100 in that example. Um, but look, um, we, can, we can talk about could have, would have, should have, but uh, we have rolled it back. But the, but the opportunity is still there. So, Scott, you can, you can book a ticket on Frontier and, uh, and fly with the, with the block middle seat. It's still available. Just we rolled back the, the incremental price. You're always a salesman. Barry Biffle, appreciate it. Phil LeBeau, of course, I appreciate you bringing this interview to us this evening as well. Gentlemen, be well. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. There is an acceleration across all of our lives from physical to digital. In the case of health insurance, you're seeing a rise in the number of cases. See what top CEOs are seeing when we give you the view from the top. Next. Also tonight, policing the trillions of dollars earmarked for American business. How can the government make sure it's only going where it's needed? A CNBC investigation. Next. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. 
You don't have to hide how you feel. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. We want to ask the Treasury and the Fed, what's your strategy? What's your focus? Tonight, a CNBC investigation. How is the government making sure all that money goes to the businesses that need it? And the playbook that I've had for a long time is cash is king. What the nation's top executives are saying about our path forward. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Tonight's highlights of CEO interviews seen throughout the day here on CNBC starts with PayPal's chief executive and his path forward. On May 1st, higher than Black Friday, higher than Cyber Monday of last year, and revenues jumped up to about 20 percent in April. I think um, this is obviously um, happening because there is an acceleration across all of our lives from physical to digital. And I think um, you're seeing digital payments uh, in this crisis move from being a nice-to-have capability to a must-have essential service. In the case of health insurance, uh, you're seeing a rise in the number of cases uh, because of the pandemic, and you're going to see uh, the cost rise. Saying that, though, actuaries are responsible for Uh, taking into account cataclysmic events that will take place. And we, as an insurance company, are in the business of being there in people's time of need. So we are ready to pay the claims and feel we're in good shape. As we had the conversation with the board, we went through a lot of different scenarios and said, how bad can it be? And even in the worst case scenario that we put forth, we still had adequate liquidity to fund the dividend for the next three years. There is just so much unknown out there. I could not possibly recommend to the board to do share buybacks this year. You know, I lived through all the crises that I talked about before. And so, the, you know, I might be writing some, you know, I might be adding some chapters to the book and maybe rewriting a little bit. But reality is, you know, the playbook that I've had for a long time was the same playbook, which is, you know, cash is king. A collection of this nation's CEOs on this network. Another one was on Mad Money. Last hour with Jim Cramer. Here's Norwegian Cruise Line's Frank Del Rio. We expect to sail sometime in 2020. It would be irresponsible for me to give you a specific date because we still have to gain clearance from the, uh, the CDC and other government agencies. But we're working hard shoulder to shoulder with them to develop and uh, enhance uh, protocols of every kind you can think of. The $2.2 trillion stimulus package known as the CARES Act is the largest in the nation's history. It presents an enormous risk of fraud with the Department of Justice already filing charges against three executives applying for aid for businesses that no longer existed. Kayla Tausche tonight on who is making sure the money ends up in the right hands. It's the most expensive piece of legislation in American history, a $2.2 trillion spending package that lets the Federal Reserve lend $5 trillion more. With all commerce halted, lawmakers loosened rules to get the money out fast. 
The more requirements we came up with, the harder it was going to be uh, to get the money out the door. The goal here is to get money out quickly. Even if 1% is misused, that's $70 billion. So who's policing all this money? The law lets Congress appoint five members to oversee the corporate loans, with virtual meetings, no chair yet, and a nebulous goal to ensure well-being. We want to ask the Treasury and the Fed, what's your strategy, what's your focus, how do you design this in order to benefit the economy as a whole, and then how do we do it in a manner where the benefits exceed the costs of this kind of an intervention in our economy? Bharat Ramamurthy, an advisor to Senator Elizabeth Warren, says he wants to make sure companies who get this money are keeping people employed. What are we getting for the $500 billion that we gave the Treasury in this program? And are the benefits of that flowing through to working people or are they being uh, shunted off mostly to executives and to shareholders? That's just one group studying part of the bill. There's a new House committee studying the White House's medical response and then existing oversight teams at each agency issuing flash reports on airline aid and small business relief. And there are two inspectors general in particular. For one, President Trump tapped White House attorney Brian Miller to oversee Treasury payouts. I will be independent. I will be, uh, I'll follow the facts wherever they, they lead. The second is chosen by agency watchdogs to chair another pandemic committee. President Trump removed their first choice, Glenn Fine, the Pentagon's acting IG, and replaced another member of the committee, acting IG for Health and Human Services, which last month disclosed shortages in medical supplies. President Trump said that report was biased. So give me the name of the inspector general. Uh, could politics be entered into that? Ethics experts say lawmakers should better protect them in the future, but anger from Main Street should keep these watchdogs motivated. Certainly they're always under threat of being fired, uh, as uh, Glenn Fine was by the president, but I think people are paying attention to this now. Despite many of these leadership roles vacant or in flux, the reports are still due. The Congressional Oversight Commission's this week, and the Small Business Administration is preparing a quick study on its $600 billion loan program. A CNBC Change Research survey found overwhelming bipartisan support to make the rules on that program stricter to keep big companies from getting the funds. And if you have information on how the CARES Act is being implemented on the ground, please reach out to us investigations at cnbc.com. Scott? Kayla, thank you. That's Kayla Tausche reporting there. There is more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Ahead tonight, turning the four seasons into a safe haven for medical workers. Before the break, images from around the world on the 130th night of this global pandemic. It's been a month since Four Seasons opened its doors to healthcare workers to stay for free during the pandemic. 
One of the goals was to help healthcare workers keep any trace of the virus out of their homes and away from their families. Dr. Christopher Reverte is an ER doctor staying at the Four Seasons. He is with us live now. Dr. Reverte, it's good to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Can you tell us how this has been going for you? Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. It's, you know, been scary for me, like I think pretty much everybody. There's a lot of uncertainties and um, a lot of people have a lot of questions. Um, it, it's been uh, very challenging for me as I just had a newborn daughter. Um, and to have to come back to work uh, when there's infectious disease that could be uh, putting myself and my family in danger. It's been a lot of emotions. Um, but uh, I've had a lot of support and help from my family and the community. Um, and so it's been quite a wild time for me. I bet. We're, we're so overwhelmingly grateful for all you're doing. I, I hope people understand the, the lengths that people like you are going, leaving your families behind, staying in hotels, albeit the Four Seasons isn't so bad, but still a newborn <laughs> baby in the month of February. Have you had a chance to see the baby and, and mom recently? Yeah, so we delivered kind of right before everything started going on to kind of lockdown and quarantine. And so I was fortunate to be able to be with my wife. And a long time ago, we had planned for me to take about a month off work right after she was born. And so I was able to take some time off. And I came back to work in the emergency room kind of right at the peak of the pandemic. So that's right when I came to the Four Seasons. And after that, I stayed away completely for about three and a half weeks to not put them at risk. And as of lately, I've been trying to kind of slowly reintegrate on my days off with, you know, using uh, protocols like masking and keeping my distance. So I've been able to see them a little bit recently, which has been great. Yeah, she's uh, just beautiful. We're looking at pictures. Uh, in fact, a beautiful <laughs> one uh, right now. Congratulations you. to you guys. How long do you think you'll you'll stay in the hotel um, and, and can you give us an idea of what New York is like now, what the front lines look like now versus then? Yeah, you know, that's a question I've been asking myself and my wife constantly is when is it safe and time for me to go back home? Because I can't do this indefinitely. And as my daughter grows, I want to be there uh, to help out and be by her side and help my wife. And I love and miss my family. So I need to at some point realize that uh, I need to get back home when we think it's safe. You know, my daughter had her vac first vaccines a few weeks ago, and that gives me a little more comfort. And as she's getting older now and her immune system gets a little stronger, uh, that makes me feel a little more uh, comfortable going home. And I'm set up to be here for several more weeks. And I think once my engagement here is done, that might be a good transition point for, and I can mentally and physically prepare to get back home. In terms of what things are like on the front line, as you can imagine, uh, you know, it was really bad late March, early April. It was just overwhelming. Uh, but things fortunately have slowed down in terms of my volume in the emergency room and the patients that we're seeing. Um, overall, New York, as you know, the numbers are downtrending. So certainly the good news is that from an emergency room doctor's perspective, there's definitely uh, downtrending in the patients coming in with COVID. Yeah, we, uh, we certainly wish you well uh, and congratulations again on that beautiful addition to your lovely family. Thank you, Scott. All right, that's Dr. Christopher Reverte joining us there. Well, a salute to a struggling industry is coming up next and the picture worth a lot more than a thousand words. Welcome back on day 130 of the crisis. Here are the latest headlines for you this evening. More than 3 million Americans filed for unemployment last week, making it about 33 and a half million over the past seven weeks. 
Ford targeting a phased restart of its North American operations, including vehicle production, on May 18th. All three of the big three have now announced plans to restart. Stocks rise. The Nasdaq, believe it or not, is now positive for the year. Every picture tells a story. These are images of a nail salon in Atlanta, Georgia. Customers being kept apart. Workers and clients separated by barriers. Just a glimpse at how some businesses are making a go of it in the path forward. We've also heard from so many restaurateurs on this show about their businesses, which are struggling tremendously. And we want to hear from you about your favorite restaurants that are open and are either delivering or doing takeout. Tweet me at my Twitter handle, at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Use the hashtag, thanks for the grub. And we're going to try and read them on air at the end of this show every night. Can't vouch for the food or the place or the management, but I sure can vouch for my commitment and ours to save our small businesses. Tonight, our first shout-outs are to Da Claudio on Ann Street in New York City, the Buckeye Roadhouse in Mill Valley, California, Ricci's Trattoria on Green Level Church Road in Cary, North Carolina, and Nalini's Euros in Omaha, Nebraska. I've got so many, I promise we're going to get to them every night and hopefully get to yours as well. Go to CNBC.com for up-to-the-minute information on the markets and the virus. We're back tomorrow, 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange, 7 p.m. for markets in turmoil. We'll see you tomorrow on the Halftime Report. For all of us at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Stay safe. The Shark Tank is next. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.